the hazard and all of this, the danger right up front is that we live in an impermanent universe. On the material end of things, nothing lasts. Everything is in decay. And when you attach, because we attach, holding on for dear life to the pleasures, and in a sense, even holding on to those aversions which we wish to avoid or push away, because we're afraid, we tighten and end up holding on to our pain as well as our pleasure, which means we're depending on things never changing. We demand that things be the way we want them to be and not change, and yet nothing is as inevitable and unavoidable as change, and we set ourselves up for the broken heart. Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hi, and welcome to the Wisdom of the Soul, brought to you by the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm Michael Benner, and today on Wisdom of the Soul, we're going to talk about what may be the cornerstone of Buddhist philosophy, and yet a concept that uh, is really not found or discussed to any great degree in the other Eastern philosophies, you know, Buddhism and Taoism in particular have a lot in common with other Eastern philosophies, Hinduism or Vedic Brahmanism, Jainism, Sikhism. But this whole idea of clinging and grasping and the suffering and the pain that comes from holding on is uh, almost exclusively a Buddhist principle, part of the a, a main part of Buddhist Dharma, the teachings. So as they say, oddly, almost exclusively a Buddhist philosophy, and yet uh, really a cornerstone of the teachings of the Dharma. And what are we holding on to? What does it mean? Attachment. What are we attached to? <laughs> well, just about everything. We're holding on for dear life because essentially we suffer from the illusion that we're separate from everything. So if you're if you're separate, if you're adrift, well, you want to hold on. You want something to hold on to, right? So we hold on to illusions and delusions of everything from who we are, our identity to uh, material objects, we love our stuff, and uh, also places, locations, your, your alma mater, your loyalty to your college or your high school, your, your state where you were raised. There's no place like home, Dorothy said. We hold on to that, to our ethnicity, 
uh, to our religions and, and our belief systems, to our emotions. People, places, things, thoughts, belief systems, emotional feelings. And we not only hold on to the positive that we want to retain and maintain, we even hold on to our aversions, that which we wish to avoid. How ironic that our pain and suffering in life is caused by holding on to our pain and suffering. Why would you do such a thing? Well, <laughs> if it hurts, why would you hold on to it? You mean I'm not stuck, I'm holding on? You mean this depression that's going on and on is part of my emotional baggage? I've, I've packed it into a backpack or a suitcase and carry it with me wherever I go? Like a grudge, for example, or I'll never forgive them, or I'll never forget. You know, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. As if continuing to suffer the pain is noble and proves some kind of point. Why do we do that? I'd like to open with a brief simile, an allegory and analogy that will help us understand the nature of attachment and why it leads to so much suffering, discontent, at the very least, if, if suffering is too strong a word, unhappiness, right? Irritation, frustration, humiliation, whatever you want to call it. Any physicist, in fact, any ninth grader or tenth grader that has studied physics at all is pretty clear that the universe is a combination of energy and matter energy and mass, all right? And the equation famously that demonstrates the equivalence of energy and mass is Einstein's uh, theory of relativity. Energy equals mass at the speed of light squared times the speed of light squared. E equals mc squared. Meaning energy equals everything else. Everything is energy. It's Really, quite simple. Well, in a, a philosophical or religious context, that same belief system is extant and, and indeed fundamental, only the energy is referred to as spirit, the root word meaning breath. And the mass is usually called matter, from the Latin word for mother, mater. So spirit is masculine in nature. Father, God, is usually portrayed as male. Spirit is masculine. And matter, its manifestation or outpicturing, is feminine. Because the feminine nature is receptive to the causative nature of, uh, of energy. So energy and mass, the idea from empirical physics that everything that exists is really energy and form. How about if I say it that way? And so we see exactly the same principle, though it's rarely discussed and not very well understood. I don't know why. It seems patently obvious when we talk about it that energy equals mass is the same as God, spirit, this uh, divine force or energy created the universe. Or maybe, maybe better said, 
Instead of God created the universe, God is the universe. Well, now we're crossing over some barriers here. What if God did not create the universe? God is the universe. The universe, the physical dense universe, every star, every asteroid, every planet, intergalactic dust and gases, <laughs> all the minerals of the periodic table, everything from one end of the universe to the other is a material outpicturing of spirit or energy. Let's think of it as all the same thing. In this way, here's the allegory. You understand what humidity is. You may have a uh, weather app. It's likely your iPhone, your Android phone came bundled with a weather app. Even before that, you knew what humidity was. And it varies. There could be a high humidity. It's going to rain. And, and it's uh, humidity 70, 80, 90%. Or you live in the south and the Southern Florida in the summertime or Texas and the humidity is 80-90%. The air is just saturated with water vapor. All right. Or here in the desert, humidity is often very low, but there's still water in the air. Everywhere there is humidity. And in the atmosphere, maybe a little or a lot, but the humidity, water vapor is everywhere. Water as a gas is one of three basic states. As it cools, and there's other conditions, barometric pressure and such, but that humidity can condense, of course. It can become a cloud. That cloud can precipitate, continue to condense and become water. And that cloud that carries the water can rain down on us. And then, as it rains down, it could turn to snow, or there's also a th the third state of ice. So let's say the water has already fallen. So it's not that the ice is completely different from water or humidity, the gas, the vapor, water, vapor, or gas. It's all the same thing just in different forms. And so the material world is spirit. It's the same thing. It's not opposite. It's the same thing, just in a solid form. And if we knew that, or as we understand that, our idea of being separate from God, separate from our source, that ice could be separate from humidity, <laughs> it's all water. So everything in the universe is energy. It's all spirit. There is no separation. And yet we cling. Now, I grew up in Michigan where back in my youth, the defrosters didn't work very well. We all carried these plastic scrapers and you'd have to scrape the ice off the windshield in the wintertime before the car warmed up and the windshield heated up and and the ice melted. We're usually out there in the morning in the winter scraping. The ice clings and so do we because we fear that we're separated. This is the source of all fear. We feel alienated and separated from our source. 
I am not you and this is not that. And so I'm going to hold on. Don't you see? I'm going to cling like the ice to the windshield of a car. Having forgotten that it's all water vapor, it's just a different state. Spirit is to matter as water is or water vapor is to ice. It's the same thing, just a different state. This will help us avoid the attachment, the holding on to people, relationships, for fear of losing love. Holding on to people and places and things, holding on to our precious belief systems, holding on to our love and our happiness and our joy, the hazard in all of this, the danger right up front is that we live in an impermanent universe and the material end of things, nothing lasts. Everything is in decay. And when you attach, because we attach, holding on for dear life to the pleasures and in a sense, even holding on to those aversions which we wish to avoid or push away because we're afraid we tighten and end up holding on to our pain as well as our pleasure, which means we're depending on things never changing. We demand that things be the way we want them to be and not change, and yet nothing is as inevitable and unavoidable as change, and we set ourselves up for the broken heart. We set ourselves up for heartbreak and pain by our desire for things to be as we wish them to be. And when we get what we want, we hold on. And like the quotation at the top of the newsletter this week, you cannot lose what you do not cling to. If you never owned it, you can't lose it. I know you love your car. But it's on its way to the junk heap. It will eventually <laughs> eventually be junk. And so instead of believing you own the car, how about I have a temporary possession of this vehicle. I'm paying for it, of course. But it's essentially on loan from the universe. And everything is on loan from the universe. It's all going away eventually. Even our most loving relationships are lost at some point. And we allow ourselves, we set ourselves up for the heartbreak that follows. We can learn to be non-attached and still experience the love because the love is everywhere, like the humidity. The ice is not everywhere, the water is not everywhere, but the humidity is everywhere. And love is everywhere equally present. You don't need to hold on to love. <laughs> right? So everything we hold on to, we eventually lose. And that's suffering. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's do an opening meditation. Close your eyes. Take a nice, slow, deep breath as you center yourself. And now open your eyes, wide awake, alert, rested, feeling great, back in the room, wide awake. Take a big breath and maybe a little stretch.
Tap your feet on the floor, get back in your body, make sure it all works. Eyes open, wide awake, back in the room, feeling better than before. Good. So what is it we attach to? And again, the reason that we attach to people, places, things, belief systems, ideas, emotions, attitudes, is that we have the appearance of being these bodies, these meat sacks, in a world where everybody's got a different body. And uh, every other object is crystallized like water into ice into these separate forms. Banging around like billiard balls on a pool table. When what we really want is connection. What we really want is harmony. What we really, really want is merging such that even a hug feels exquisite. And holding hands. And <laughs> sitting with like-minded people, laughing, and uh, telling stories and carrying on. And this is joyful. And while there are many benefits to solitude, there's also the hazard of loneliness. We did one of these classes a few months ago on the nature of loneliness. It's not what it appears to be, for we could have many relationships and still feel alone. We could be in a crowded room and still feel alone. So it's a little more complex than the appearance of things. But loneliness is a horrible feeling, whether you're actually alone <laughs> or with a bunch of people but still feel lonely. It's one of the most hurtful things that couples ever do to each other. Never, never do this. The shunning or the cold shoulder. Where you just don't speak to each other because you're so angry. And uh, you're going to prove to the other one how disgusted you are by not speaking. Oh, that is so hurtful. Do not do that. If you don't know what to say and you're uncomfortable, say, I don't know what to say and I'm uncomfortable and I need some time to sort things out. But don't pretend the other person is not there. There's not a worse fear in the world than to feel alone and unloved and uncared for, alienated and separated. It's just the worst. So, because of the appearance of being separated and the feeling that we are separated and alienated, we attach, we cling, we grasp. Each other, loving relationships, the dog. God, I love my dog. I love every dog I've ever had. Dogs are so loyal, right? Dogs have masters. Come here, boy. Come here, girl. <laughs> they always do, right? He said, well, I don't know. I've had some bad experience with dogs. I'm not really a dog person, but I love my kitties. Lots of people have both. In which case, the dogs and the kitties love each other too. 
I had a cat that used to curl, you know, my dog would sleep in sort of a, my dog would, would uh, sort of curl up and the cat would curl up inside the space where the dog had curled up. It was so cute, so adorable. They loved each other. Or maybe it was just cold and they wanted to warm each other. But in any event, we love our pets. And when we lose them, it breaks our heart. And I remember very clearly knowing when I got my first dog as an adult. I'll forget childhood. That was sort of complicated. But when I, as a young adult, decided to get a dog... I knew, given the breed, how long it was going to live, plus or minus a year. And I knew it would break my heart when it died. And it did. And so I thought, like most people, well, maybe I'll just not get another dog. Some people, in their loving relationships with other human beings, when they lose that relationship, vow never to love again, or at least not that deeply, never to be that vulnerable because it just hurt too much when you lose it. You never really lose love. What you lose is the holding on. The attachment can be lost. But again, like humidity, which is everywhere, love is everywhere, you don't need to hold on to love. This is one of the challenges of grieving as we hold on to the pain of that loss when we grieve for fear that if we let go of the pain, we're also going to forget the love. So we hold on to the pain and the suffering and prolong the grief and the heartache out of a confused belief that it's a way of holding on to the love and the happiness and the and the joyful memories, and, and it's not true. Let go of the grief, heal, move through the loss and the grief, and you find not only is the love continue, it grows. Even though you've lost the relationship, the love continues and even grows. So we don't need to hold on to love. You don't need to hold on to pleasure. You don't need to hold on to happiness or joy. It's the humidity. It's everywhere. There is no place where there is not water vapor. There is no place where there is not spirit. And spirit is consciousness, awareness, love. That's what spirit is. Call it awareness. Call it consciousness. Call it capital L, love, agape. That's what it is. Even your run-of-the-mill psychologist and the social worker and, and psychotherapist will tell you, love is not an emotion. Love is not. Look at the lists of emotions. Google it. Love is not an emotion. It's more of a... We know it is spirit or consciousness or awareness, but to the, to the secular psychologist, it's a drive. But it's not an emotion. And we'll talk about holding on to emotions more in a minute. So part of holding on to loving relationships is emotional in nature, no question about it. Uh, there's an emotional element in all holding on, but 
it's not just the obvious. I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my, I, I love my goldfish. I love my car. I love clothes. God, I love clothes. Some people love clothes. Dress for success. Fashion is everything. I am my clothing. I am my car. I am my house. I am my status, my prestige, my country club membership. How desperate. I am my handsome, successful husband. I am my beautiful trophy wife. I am my kids. Don't embarrass me. My father actually told me that once. <laughs> God, he actually told me that once after a Little League All-Star game. I didn't get to bat. And I apologized that I never got to bat. And because uh, I wanted to make him proud. What kid doesn't want to make their parents proud, right? And without thinking, he said, that's okay. I was afraid you were going to embarrass me anyway. God, I was just crushed. <laughs> I'm sure at some point he came to his senses and realized what a stupid thing that was to say. But it was true. He was he was afraid that I was going to embarrass him. He had attached his identity to my performance in Little League. Imagine that. And before the meditation today, I said uh, the same thing about our our loyalty to our school, our alma mater. That's what Facebook is, right? All your friends from high school. Uh, that loyalty and how much more cool your high school was than the other one down the road. My football coach once, we had this, I don't know what made it a big game. Maybe it was uh, homecoming or something uh, a game in a particular football season that was bigger than all the rest. And as I remember, we were playing a city down the road called uh, Dwajiak. A lot of Indian names where I grew up, Dwajiak. And in the middle of the night, two days before the game, my coach went out to our football field and with gasoline, in the middle of the night, burned a big letter D in the turf. And then told everybody that kids from the rival school down the road had done that. And were we going to let them get away with that, or were we going to win this game? And fill up the ambulances, you know, were we going to kill, kill, kill? I guess that game must have been real important to him. He was grasping and clinging and wanted us to be attached to the outcome of that game when, you know, a couple of years out of high school, I don't even remember the game. I don't, rem I don't remember the cheerleaders that well. I don't, I don't remember all the cities we played, but at the time... Oh, my God, when you're in high school, everything seems, junior high, too, everything seems so, not so much in grade school, but junior high and high school, God, things take on such a big significance. The prom, right, or that dance on Saturday at the Y, or, oh, it was so important. No, it wasn't all that important, and we laugh at it now, but... We're still clinging. We've got other things we think are important. And so uh, my friends from Michigan State, 
when football season comes around, basketball season comes around, especially if it's a good year. Um, we got creamed by Washington last yesterday, so I don't suppose uh, not hearing from my friends now. Team's not so good this year. Nevertheless, there's that loyalty, Big Ten. And nationalism and patriotism, USA, number one, USA, USA, better than all the rest. Really? What's wrong with go world, go team, go everybody in the world? We're so parochial in our loyalty, in our, in our holding on, in our need for things to be the way we want them to be. Damn it. And then forevermore. Damn it. I want what I want. And I want it now, and I want it forever. And I'm going to deny the reality of impermanence. And therefore, I'm going to set myself up again and again and again for the inevitable suffering that comes with impermanence. Oops. It broke. Oops. I really love that thing. And it's getting old. It's beginning to decay. It doesn't work anymore. I can't get it fixed. They don't make them like they used to. It corrodes, it rusts, it rots. And eventually all the stuff that we work so hard to earn the money to buy, to acquire, to possess, to cherish, to cling to, we find ourselves dragging out to the dumpster on trash night. But that's okay, because there's more. Look, I do it too. I'm not above being addicted. Is that too strong a word? To materialism? I love it. Consumerism? I love it. I got my stuff. I love it. But there's a middle way. The antidote to all of this is not to be detached that's called the near enemy in Buddhist philosophy. The opposite of attachment is not to be detached. If you're detached, you don't care at all. You become apathetic, ambivalent, or even oblivious. You just don't care. I heard Elon Musk say that the other day in uh, response to the criticism he's getting he said, I just don't care. I guess he thinks that makes him look strong. To me, it looked like an uncaring person. <laughs> Nothing virtuous about not caring. Right? It's, it's like that word pride, I think. There is such a thing as healthy pride, but excessive pride, not a good thing. It separates us again, creates more fear. A sense of superiority. I'm either afraid of being inferior or arrogant at being superior. Both have to do with fear. What if I'm instead let go of those attachments and just accept that in form anyway, I'm unique? Part of one thing. We're all emanations of one thing, yet in form, 
as the humidity becomes water and then ice, <laughs> we take different shapes and different forms. But it's just a temporary state. It'll change. Everything does. Let go. We attach to people. We attach to places. We attach to things. And we attach to our belief systems, our thoughts, our ideas. Why do you believe what you believe? Have you ever asked yourself, why do I believe this? Why do I believe that? This was a big part of the radio talk shows I did back in the 80s and 90s on Los Angeles radio. And I would, you know, it was always about personal development and human potential, but the pretext, the pretense was current events. I would always use some newspaper article or some current event to stimulate phone calls and conversation. Sometimes we had guests, but more often than not, the guest was the caller, and I would just do what we called open conversation, open phones, just what's on your mind. Here's a few things in the news. People would call and tell me what they thought, and I'd say, that's great. Now, let's do something the other talk shows don't do. Tell me why you think that. Why do you believe that that's true? And people would hem and haw and realize that uh, they really had no idea why they believed that was true. So I'd help them out and I'd say, do you think maybe it's because somebody told you it was true and maybe several people told you it was true, maybe they agreed, and maybe they have high credibility in your mind. Maybe they're authoritative or people that you respect. And all of those factors combined caused you to adopt this belief. But have you done your due diligence? Do you, in fact, know that it's true? And often is not. No, we don't. We have no idea why we believe. Maybe that's overstated. Maybe maybe I should uh, moderate that somewhat, but I'm going to say it out anyway. For the most part, how about that as a qualifier? For the most part, we have no idea why we believe what we believe, except that we've heard it a bunch of times, and people we admire and respect and trust tell us it's true. And we don't like the people who disagree with that truth. They threaten us. But of course, their truth, they hang out with people that accept that truth, and they're threatened by those who disagree. Then we get this binary polarization, right and wrong. Well, you're wrong. No, I'm not wrong. I just, I disagree with you. That doesn't make me wrong. Well, you think I'm wrong. No, I I. I don't think, I may think you're confused or <laughs> ill-informed. I don't think you're really wrong. A lot of what people disagree about is is not really a right-wrong kind of a thing. It's like both have elements of understanding, both have elements of truth, but they're incomplete. There's a lot of disagreement that is about just yeah, you got a good point. There's a lot of truth, a lot of merit in that. And here's a very different point. And it's got truth and merit and validity in it. 
but they're so different that we just assume because of our split brains that if they're different, one must be right and the other must be wrong. No, they're both true to a relative degree, but each side is missing the insight and the understanding of the other side. There is a middle way between attachment and detachment. So the alternative to attachment is not to detach, to be oblivious, or just not care. You can be passionate and loving and kind, passionate and compassionate, kind, generous. I like the word equanimity. It really implies, it suggests that balance, that even-tempered level-headedness of I'm not attached to anything. And I can still be kind and loving and generous and tolerant and happy and share my happiness without holding on to pleasure and needing it never to change or resisting the negative and holding on to that because again fear makes us hold on fear causes us to tighten and clutch and grasp even more I opened the class today talking about how odd that is and how ironic that we would carry our pain. So when people talk about being balanced, being centered, or in philosophy, the middle way, it's the way of non-attachment. And it's easy to think of being detached instead of attached. But that's the opposite extreme. And we want to avoid extremes and walk right down the middle, balanced. All truth, all of it. The pain and the pleasure. The first noble truth in Buddhism, life is suffering. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Everybody suffers. I don't imagine there's any value in denying that life is difficult. And again, if suffering is too strong a word. Maybe you just haven't suffered yet. How about discontent? Or how about unhappiness? Or just about, you know, being upset or irritated or frustrated or angry? That's suffering. Hate, fear, that's suffering. So you say, well, I don't suffer. I'm not Christ on the cross crown of thorns, nails in my hands and feet, spear in my side, that's suffering. Yeah, well, when the dog died, you suffered. When your your boyfriend or girlfriend kicked you to the curb for somebody else and didn't care at all. When they deliberately hurt you to show you how much you hurt them, and you have no idea what they're talking about. I didn't hurt anybody. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. And I'm going to hurt you so that you know what it's like. I'm going to set you straight. I can't let you get away with that. These words sound familiar. <laughs> what is that about? You know? I can't let you get away with that? What What the hell? What, what is that? 
I'm going to set them straight. I'll show them a thing or two. All figures of speech that we know very well. My job is to fix you, set you straight. Wag my bony finger in your face and scold you. You know, how about physician heal thyself? How about turning within and recognizing that all this heartache, all this pain and suffering that seems to be done to us is actually a reflection of our projection. Reality is a reflection of your projection. <laughs>